with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Eric Allen, for the next hour. Excuse me, my guests will be James Steidel, Peter Ewart, and Herb Martin. Got a number of subjects here this morning. We're going to try to get through. Um, one of them will be BC raw, raw log exports. And this comes up all the time, and it's been an issue on and off again, probably going back, well, certainly before 1900s it was an issue, and it's even an issue again today. So every time uh, something happens in the industry or and people start saying, well, we better keep those logs. And then the, the truck loggers say, well, what about our jobs? And here we go again. So we're going to get into that. And also that the uh, PG pulp and paper industry, not just PG, but the pulp and paper industry in BC is in crisis. Not so much pulp as paper. So we'll touch on that. Some talk about shutting down some mills. And uh, because uh, of a shortage of fiber, maybe we have to shut down some sawmills, etc. So we have that. Then we're going to try to get into remote work and why, uh, if you work remotely, you may not have a job in five years. That's sort of interesting. And then we have what we call the quiet quitters. And those are people who, what used to be called working to rule in old railway terminology, but basically means they're just doing what the job requires no more. And then silently, uh, the company that they work for, some companies that they work for, try to get rid of them and uh, send them down the road and get somebody in there that'll do a little more. So that's where we're going to get rolling. We're going to start off with Peter Ewart this morning on the logs, and uh, he's going to give us an overview of just what's going on out there. Uh, oh, thanks, Eric. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot to be concerned about in terms of the export of raw logs. This is, as you pointed out, has been going on for many years, and millions and millions of uh, raw logs have been <coughs> exported uh, all over the all over the globe. You know, so I, I think what we're looking at here is like the raw logs for me, the the export of them. It's uh, it's just another. Th- symptom of a, of a larger problem and the fact that the forests in British Columbia have uh, not been well managed in, in the last hundred years. Uh, successive governments uh, have uh, b- uh, basically been captured by, by big business in terms of the big forest companies uh, in terms of policy and as a result a whole number of things are coming to a head right in terms of availability of the uh, of the of the timber, the, the whole environmental issue, the you know the the pine beetle epidemic, and and so on and so forth, right? So, um, what we have today is uh, you know we have a government that uh, talks about uh, getting more value out of the wood and all this, but uh, you know the fact is uh, we we see what's happening on the ground, where these uh, whole number of big companies, uh, including Canfor, West Fraser, Teal Jones, and all this are investing billions and billions of dollars uh, taken from basically generated here in British Columbia and reinvesting it in the southern United States and other places in the world. So we have a situation whereby um, the uh, instead of the, the provincial government called for getting more value out of the wood, more value added, and so on, but uh, there's, uh, you know, where are the measures, the, the 
punitive measures and all this to make that happen in terms of what the big companies are doing. The, the big companies are, are ignoring it. They're just, they're, they're leaving, right? So basically you have a situation where the government, uh, you know, well, I guess what their slogan could be, why do by half what you can do by quarters? And uh, as a result, um, we have a looming crisis, uh, or another way to put it is uh, the squeezed lemon syndrome. But uh, and whatever the case, we're dealing with a new situation with our forests, and we're going to have to f- figure out ways in which uh, we can move ahead. But especially, we need, we need forestry that is in the hands of communities and the people and not in the hands of, uh, of uh, corporations, multinational corporations, and so on. James, you want to just touch on that? Yeah. Um, I think the, the raw log export thing, agree with everything Eric's saying there, but we think we've got to make a distinction here between um, coastal and interior forestry. So a lot of the, the log exports are coming from the coast. A lot of it's from Vancouver Island. A lot of it's from the north coast. And in the interior, we don't really export our logs out of here, but what we are seeing, I think, is kind of a an indirect exporting from communities like McKenzie. We're exporting logs from McKenzie to places like Dunkley. And we're also exporting fiber now uh, through the pellet industry. So a lot of fiber that could be getting turned into pulp, uh, so we're talking about our deciduous species here, uh, are getting exported offshore. Um, and I uh, just, just wanted to touch on an article there from last year by David Broadland cause, called uh, Does Forestry Pay the Bills? And what he found was that if you look at all the expenses that the Ministry of Forests takes on as far as fighting wildfires and managing forests, and you look at the royalty intake from the forests, like we spend more money on our forests than we get in indirect royalties. And one of the and one of the criticisms of that argument was that, well, you're not counting all the income taxes and the economic activity that comes from the manufacturing of our lumber products. And I think that that argument is sound so long as we're manufacturing our wood and we have sawmills running. And that argument falls apart when we start talking about exporting logs for, you know, lower value product. And basically all we're getting out of those logs now is truck trucking jobs and some logging jobs. I mean, it's a fraction of, of what we had. Uh, and just look at, um, now I know the Truck Loggers Association will argue with this, but you know, we used to have 100,000 direct forestry jobs in this province, and now we're down to 50,000. And at the same time, the raw log exports, I think, have more than doubled. They've gone from 2 million cubic meters to, I think we're sitting around 6 or 7 uh, million cubic meters of raw log exports now. So yeah, that's just in the last 15 years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we got to start talking about more local manufacturing, and, and we also have to look at... Uh, other ways that we're losing out on fiber that could be used to keeping some of these pulp mills running, including the pellet industry, which I don't think is really calculated in in how that's a drain on our fiber supply, but it's a it's got to be something. Okay, thanks, uh, Herb. Do you want to uh, give us your view on this? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's pretty astounding. Some of these numbers, uh, even more dire than and. What James was saying, uh, in 1997, uh, BC exported uh, 200,000 cubic meters uh, of raw logs. By 2013, that had reached 6.5 million cubic meters. Uh, For some sort of idea how how much that is, that's roughly about 147,000 logging trucks full that we we exported out of this province. Uh, You know, this is... uh, 
that really is tied in, I think, mostly to uh, pertinency and um, uh, something the Liberals brought in. And um, uh, and it's been devastating, as, as James said, you know, the huge loss of jobs. Uh, in Ontario, for instance, uh, it takes 292 cubic meters to create one forestry job. Uh, in BC, we require 1,300 cubic meters to create one job. So that's it, that gives you a, you know some sort of sense of the scale of the problem that we're talking about. Uh, you know the um, the export of raw logs uh, supposedly is is keeping things going. I would argue it's a crutch that um, uh, people are relying on, that, and, and it really it doesn't require any investment or very little investment. And it's it's easy money, and we we seem to be taking the easy path uh, more and more in Canada. Uh, yeah, no, I think, you know, at some point we've got to do what uh, Putin did in uh, in Russia and just uh, ban exports of, of raw logs to China. Uh, you know, if we if he, he can do it, we can do it. And um, uh, it's time, time to reinvest in ourselves, quite frankly. Well, <clears throat> you know, we did have that pulp mill at Watson Island. We had another pulp mill at uh, Eurocam Pulp and Paper. They were getting their logs from somewhere. They both shut down in the last 10, 15 years. I know the logs from the Hazelton area are still going to Prince Rupert and being exported. <clears throat> the company that had the TFL, I think it was eventually turned over to the First Nations and then it's being logged and exported. I guess at that point, you know, the rules and regulations covering export, if there's nobody in the area that can mill the logs, then you can export them. But there's lots of other uh, rules attached to that. So there's lots more to this issue than meets the eye. You know, the uh, corporations uh, always say they have to look after the uh, shareholder value. That's their number one priority. But that's kind of a, you know, just kind of place where they can go and hide when the heats get on. fact of the matter is, if you only sold those items that made the most profit for the shareholders. When you went into a, a grocery store or, or a, a big uh, store, you'd only buy steaks and uh, maybe uh, you know a bottle of wine or a couple of bottles of wine and a few other really expensive things. And you wouldn't buy you know the really cheap things and they shouldn't even be there if you're going to use that concept that we have to look after shareholder value because you're making very little money on some of these uh, items. And it's the same thing with the forest industry. You know, you might not be making, you might be making huge amounts of money on lumber that's being exported to certain customers in the United States and, and pulp and paper. Pulp and paper and lumber basically are owned by the same company. Uh, you know, they, they split them apart and they do a lot of back and forth. But the fact of the matter is they're owned by the same company. And, you know, when the pulp companies are making money, quite often the forest companies are losing it. But, at the end of the day, all that money goes into one pot and goes to the shareholders. My contention is that we've got to quit telling those tall tales and get down to the fact that the all-inclusive revenues going into these things should be portioned, apportioned out so that if you bring in log, if you can bring logs from Prince George or Mackenzie to a mill in Dunkley, you can certainly somehow or other with the railway involvement bring them from New Hazelton and that to the pulp mills in Prince George. And I defy anybody to tell me that it can't be done if 
you get away from this mantra that we got to go, oh, we got to make the most money. No, you don't. You look at your profits at each quarter, and where the money comes from is irrelevant. It's just that, and if the shareholders don't like it, they can go buy another stock. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, if you look at Dunkley, I mean, uh, Dunkley is a perfect example of a company that's kept on going uh, throughout the last five years without with any any curtailments whatsoever. Right? They've they've focused on efficiency. They're focused on uh, you know basically uh, keeping their markets uh, and their and their employees uh, supplied and and uh, and employed. So uh, Canfor and and the other majors like uh, West Fraser and Interfor are playing this game where they've got one step in the, one, one foot in the U.S. and one foot in Canada, and uh, when the numbers work, they'll they'll produce in Canada. When the numbers don't work, they'll they'll shut the mills down. So what what uh, why are we supporting that? And um, you know I think what we need is more local mills. James can answer that one. Well, there's, I think there's a pretty direct correlation between uh, shutdowns and whether or not the mill that's doing the shutdowns has operations in other countries or other provinces. You know, you never hear about Carrier Lumber doing shutdowns. You never hear about Dunkley Lumber doing shutdowns, or very, very seldom if they do. Um, but I'd just like to jump back into the, the raw log thing there. I, mean, um, I was reading some of those articles you sent around, Eric, uh, one there by the Truck Loggers Association, and there's, there's a real big contradiction there, I find, where they talk about... Um, well, just this need, like you say, to feed the the short term goals of the shareholders, but they're kind of ignoring the long term, the long term game here. And if you look at the the most value out of the forest is logging old growth. I mean, that's why they want to keep logging old growth and why they don't want to switch to their plantation forest because you get way more cubic meters of lumber for less effort out of these old growth forests. So we know that the Truck Loggers Association knows that, but then. They're saying, you know, if we didn't do these raw log exports, all these trees would be left standing. Like, like what a what a catastrophe that would be. I mean, come on. If we didn't do these raw log exports, basically what we're going to have is we're going to have trees adding more value, uh, probably exponentially more value in those forests. Um, so I just don't understand the big rush to export these logs. You know, if we don't have a market for milling them now... Uh, it's probably because those trees aren't big enough to to be profitable to mill here. So let's just keep them growing. Like who cares? Like what's the? And not to mention all the climate change benefits of having older trees in those forests and biodiversity and tourism and all that other good stuff. So yeah, I think I think we got to take a longer longer projection here of our of our forests and raw log exports. They've got to we've got to stop doing that. I just want to add there that you know the the Watson Island pulp mill and and the pulp mills. In Prince George, back a number of years ago, they they took whole logs into the mill and then they chipped them and made pulp out of them. And basically, these logs that are going overseas to Japan or Korea or China, wherever they're going, they just chip them up and uh, they either make lumber out of them or they chip them up and and they make wood pulp. And if they can do it, we can do it. You know, it's time that we stopped all this BS. We need somebody in government that knows what the H is going on in this country because we don't have too many people that do. We're going to stop for a breakdown. Community Radio CFIS-FM needs your support. While our station is run predominantly by volunteers, money is always needed to keep the monthly bills paid as well as for the production of new local programming. Memberships, donations, corporate sponsorships, and advertisers all help to keep your local independent broadcaster functioning. 
For more information on how you can contribute to this vital part of the Prince George Media Mix, visit our website at cfisfm.ca or give us a call at 250-563-2347. It is never too cold for ice cream at the Marble Slab Creamery. Tuesday is Seniors Day, and seniors 55 and over get a small cone with unlimited fixings for $5 or a banana split for $7 plus tax. Marble Slab Creamery makes the best ice cream using 100% Canadian dairy, and it's made fresh in-store. Marble Slab Creamery is located at 3040 Rec Place Drive, across from the Canadian Brew House, with lots of free parking. If you enjoy coffee, you'll love the rich, mellow flavor of the freshly roasted coffee at Deb's Cafe. If you want a fresh, hearty lunch, our soups and sandwiches will satisfy you. If you want delicious baked goods, our wide selection will please you, even if you have dietary restrictions. More than a coffee shop, more than a cafe, Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery. Open 8 to 3, Monday through Friday, next to Pharmacies at 7th and Quebec. Forecast from Environment Canada, cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries this morning, then clearing, wind from the southwest at 20 gusts into 40, a high of 4 with a morning wind chill to minus 8. Tonight clear, becoming partly cloudy late this evening, southwest winds becoming light, a low of minus 8 with a wind chill to minus 11. For Tuesday, clearing late in the morning and a high of 1. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. We're going to go to Peter and get in a little more info on log exports from him. Yeah, Eric, I, I think one of the things that's coming over this uh, this whole period here is that we have to realize that we're in a new period in terms of, like, we're not in the same situation we were 40 or 50 years ago in terms of the forest industry. Uh, it's been radically changed, and in many ways for the for the worse. So we, ha- we have to recognize that situation, but it requires new type of thinking, right? You know, in terms of Proceeding from the interests of, of communities, indigenous people, the workers, and so on, rather than proceeding from the interests of the of the of the big companies, and I think that's one of the key things there is that we need that uh, we need that new kind of thinking uh, and new way of doing things. I, my fear is that uh, uh, even today, right, with this new situation that exists in terms of the force in BC, we still have the old thinking very much in command. And uh, in terms of government and, uh, and and so on, so I think I think that's one of the critical things that has to be uh, developed and changed. Yeah, I certainly agree with that, uh, Herb. Did you figure out how many actual truckloads a day that was? Yeah, I, yeah I, it turns out it's roughly about four hundred truckloads um, per day of, of uh, raw logs leaving BC, and um, if you line those uh, trucks up end to end. It would stretch from Vancouver to Thunder Bay, Ontario. If inhabited by four people each, the homes built by those logs would house more people than all of Vancouver. <clears throat> so there you go. That's what's going on out in our oceans. Now, I know for a fact I was in Prince Rupert in 1962, and they were exporting logs like it was going out of style then. And I think that uh, I just looked at what's going through the port of Prince Rupert last month, or up into... Uh, uh, to the end of uh, year to date, eighty-four thousand eighty-one uh, tons, and that's twenty twenty-two. But in twenty twenty-one year to date, two hundred forty-two thousand eight hundred thirty-six tons. So it's still rolling through Prince Rupert and going to China or wherever they're going. 
and you're going to have, you know, from some of the re- more remote areas, if they don't have mills there, you're going to have some export. And I don't think anybody has a problem with that. Uh, if you can't seriously get it out of there and do something with it in, you know, some mill in BC. But uh, we, if we need fiber for our mills to keep running in British Columbia, then we have to get away from exporting from the interior, especially from up around the Rupert area. We can bring those logs this way. If we can send lumber from Prince George all the way to Tallahassee, Florida, surely we can send logs from Port Nelson to Prince George. And we certainly could do it when the BC Rail was a, a entity on its own instead of working now with basically as the CN Railway. And they don't want to do it. The, the, the profit there is not there. You know, the... the uh, BC, old BC Rail, if it made operating costs, it was happy. So, different situation, like Peter says, and uh, really, we're going to have to look at that. I mean, you, <clears throat> you look at the history of BC Rail, Eric, I think you're, you're bang on there. I mean, the the reason why British Columbia established its own railroad company at, at the time, I think it was called uh, PG&E, Pacific... Uh, Great Eastern. Pacific Greater Eastern, which was a, a short for Prince George eventually, because when they tried to build that north, that uh, rail line north, that... It hit the Cottonwood River there, I think Cottonwood River? Yeah, north of Quinell, and it, and it stopped for, for decades. But uh, the whole reason for that was that uh, British Columbia, the, you know, the, the government at the time, realized that the CN, these eastern-owned company, railroad companies, weren't in it for the benefit of British Columbia. And that's why we established BC Rail, because they could basically improve the economic potential of uh, British Columbia and serve our needs. And when we sold that, we sold that agenda as well. And now it's now it's owned by these, you know. And I think you sent around an article there, Eric. There's uh, what we got two big railroad companies now, and they they don't they don't give a damn about our our economic needs. I mean, they're they're just they just want to get the most valuable thing that they can ship, and that is not going to include shipping uh, logs from the coast to Prince George to keep our pulp mills running. Yeah, there there was an interesting article, and that that's the from the uh, Financial Post article. And in it, they quoted that the uh, return uh, to the railway per ton was something like uh, $8.73 for uh, uh, forest products, and um, it was about $4.50 for grain. So that tells you how the uh, forest industry uh, is getting shafted, basically, by CN and CP. And so, you know, getting rid of BC Rail was a big mistake. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, that line is still good between Prince George and Vancouver. Uh, you know, the provincial government should look into opening that up and uh, and reestablishing uh, that line up to uh, Fort Nelson. If it's, I, th- I, th- I think they're they're key doing uh, doing basic uh, um, uh, repairs on it, keeping it going, but it's it's not being used. And then passenger service too. And passenger service as well. Well, you might have a problem with passenger service uh, unless you do it sort of as a. Well, you could do it, I guess, but uh, there's not too many people travel by rail anymore. Oh, uh, unless it's a tourist. That type thing. was the coolest trip I ever did. I was lucky enough to take the the trip there from Squamish yeah. to. Um, well, actually, they loaded us onto a bus at uh, Lillooet because there's a derailment. But <laughs> man, the um, the the trip from Lillooet to, to Squamish was phenomenal. You know, you're not even along the roads. You're going through crazy places that you can only see from the train. Yeah, it's yeah, beautiful, beautiful uh, scenery there. And they do have a couple of tourist 
trains that run through there during the summer, and it could be more. Used to go to Cornell, stay overnight, and then go up to Jasper and then back down to Vancouver. But there's lots of things yeah. we can do. But if there's no money in it, no shareholder value, they don't want to do it, and that's the problem. We have to find a way around that roadblock. And uh, you know, <clears throat> the BC Rail was put in to open up areas so that we can get the logs and the and the. Uh, the ore and that type of thing out of there and we had the Dees Island uh, or Dees Lake extension and we had log trains that brought it all the way into Rustad's yard and they sorted them there and they went to the different mills and a lot of the uh, popular that went down to the OS and B plant in Quinell you know, it went like that for years and years and years so anybody that wants to indicate that we can't do that, of course we can so we don't have the will to do it because it's all about just making the big dollars. And uh, that's okay for the shareholders, but the rest of us have got to eat too. So what do you think, Peter? Uh, yeah, no, I think you hit upon it there, the whole question like of, uh, of the, the profit moment of, and, the, and the private interests. You know, what, what happened, uh, you know, this was a few decades back and all this, is that there was a, you know, we had CN Rail, which was a publicly owned uh, railway. We had BC Rail, which was publicly owned. Of course, since then, they've all been sold off. And as a result, uh, we have um, the, our railway system in, in private hands. And there's always that problem, right, because the private interest collides with the public interest in terms of, uh, and the private interest uh, uh, tends to trump uh, all sorts of things. And so we have a situation where it's not just mills who are upset with this kind of thing, but there's other, um, like grain shippers and, and, and others, like the farmers and so on, who are having trouble with the railway. And so in terms of what is the problem with the railway, well, one of the grain shippers um, put it, he said the, the problem is not, you know, just, you know, that there's floods from time to time or there, there's washouts of the rail line. And so as a result, you get a backup and all that uh, and, uh, and uh, other sorts of problems like that. Uh, according to him, the, the, gra- the grain shipper, the government has been too soft on the rail companies. And uh, letting them get away with, uh, you know, dictating, uh, you know, what what is in their best interest and uh, be damned with everyone else. And so I think we have to look at this situation from the point of view of, like, when we talk about uh, transportation system, just like health care. You know, there's some, there's some, even I think some of the, you know, the strongest capitalists would agree that uh, there are some things that should not be in private hands. That they should be, uh, we should find new ways to, uh, uh, you know, de- develop cooperative enterprises and so on, right? That, uh, that 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 can take the public interest into account rather than the private interests of uh, of big multinational railway companies. Okay, we're going to go to break now, and then we'll come back, and uh, maybe nobody has anything else. We'll change the subject. The residential school experience comes to life at the Prince George Playhouse Saturday evening with Bunk Number 7, a play by Larry Guno. A presentation of Inno Natives, The Raven Collective, be advised that Bunk Number 7 contains sensitive material and coarse language. The inspiring biographical story of Larry Guno's time at the Edmonton Indian Residential School in the 1960s, Bunk Number 7 hits the stage of the Prince George Playhouse at 7 Saturday evening. Tickets are just $20, available at Brooks & Company. 
Join a panel of caregivers as they share how their discovery of different mediums have helped them navigate the complexities of the dementia journey. During the Lived Experience webinar, you'll learn tips for getting started with your own creative exploration as a way to cope and find meaning as a dementia caregiver. Lived Experience, Caregiver's Creative Expression of the Dementia Journey, Wednesday, November 23rd from 2 to 3. Register for this free webinar or watch previous presentations online through alzbc.org slash webinars. A new program aimed at sparking and supporting innovative tourism ideas in northern B.C. is now taking applications. The Spark Mentorship and Grants Program will match selected applicants with a tourism mentor, provide a $3,000 grant, and additional partner support to help take their tourism idea to the next level. Applications are being accepted through December 6th. For more information on the Spark Mentorships and Grants Program and available info sessions, visit tourisminformation.ca slash northernbc. This year's Festival of Trees is set for November 30th to December 4th at the Civic Center. The Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation is taking what they learned over the last few years to infuse even more excitement and energy into the annual fundraiser. Tickets for all events this year will be available online starting Monday at spiritofthenorth.ca or by calling the Foundation office at 250-565-2515. The 22nd Annual Festival of Trees, November 30th to December 4th at the Civic Center. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're going to stick with the subject a little bit longer. James has something he wants to say. Yeah, I just wanted, I just wanted to point out, you know, back, back to the comment on the BC Rail and, and why we established it. It seems to me, looking at, at our big transportation system there on, on the railroads in Canada, uh, basically it's geared to these really... Um, high volume resource extraction industries. That's what the railroad prioritizes. And I think we've really lost that kind of fine grained, more, more custom transportation needs of a localized economy. And I think BC Rail kind of helped with that. You know, like you say, Eric, they just, they just wanted to cover operating costs and, and they were happy and, and they, and they were there to help our local, businesses get established and, and transport stuff and we don't have that anymore i mean i took the via rail from from jasper to saskatchewan and and those companies don't even they don't even prioritize uh, passenger transportation like we were waiting on on sidings for hours to wait for these big trains to go by and you know we were we were way down they way down the list of priority there so i think i think we got to look at our transportation as kind of more of a public asset uh, there's this thing in economics called a natural monopoly, and a natural monopoly is where you have, where it only makes sense to have a monopoly. Like if you've got a power line company servicing a neighborhood, it doesn't make sense to have competition in your power line provision. Like it makes zero economic uh, sense to have two power lines on every street so that people have a choice to choose from it. No, you're going to have one service provider. That's called a natural monopoly, and you've got to have either government regulation on that or it's got to be government owned and that's the only time when government ownership makes sense is when you got a natural monopoly otherwise competition keeps people from getting screwed over and we don't have that in our railroad industry i don't think probably we've got a little bit of an oligopoly or or something like that um but i don't have that in front of me herb uh, well you know someone once said uh, look canada's uh Basically, uh, the corporations here consist of uh, five banks, two railways, three, t- three t- telecommunic- 
to telecommunications companies and um, a trench coat. Uh, what else? Uh, three grocery stores. <laughs> so you know, there's you know, there's uh, a lot of oligopolies in Canada. We seem to be uh, used to it, but uh, and you know, it's it's a real it's a real problem for us. So uh, when you have corporations deciding. Uh, what's beneficial and what isn't? Um, yeah, we're we're basically at the at the mercy of uh, people uh, in large corporate uh, uh, towers, be it in Toronto or Calgary or Vancouver or elsewhere. You know, so um, uh, you know, this is something we have to start uh, asking for is more competition between CN and CP. Uh, we've got to start. Uh, asking for things that uh, we used to, you know, take for granted. Like in B.C., uh, the ferries were uh, part of the highway system, and um, that's been semi-privatized, as has B.C. Rail. And, you know, we've given up a lot of uh, potential uh, for private uh, profit. Anyway... Okay, Peter, you want to just touch on that? Yeah, I think what's important to keep in mind is, uh, you know, in terms of when we look at countries and nations and so on, there are things that stitch them together. And one of the things that stitches them together is the transportation system, like the whole question of B.C. even coming into Confederation and all that had to tied up with the, the, the whole extending the railway uh, from the east to west. And, uh, of course, we look at the province, like in terms of building uh, British Columbia, right, the role that uh, uh, BC Rail played in that. And uh, so these things are they're part of the stitching of a, of a, of a nation, of a, a country, of a province. Uh, so they should not be so willy-nilly just sold off to, the, to some foreign uh, source or whatever like, like, they, like they have been. Uh, these are vital things for, in terms of if we're looking at na- building a nation. Uh, we have to have certain uh, things that stitch that nation together, and one of them is transportation. Okay, I just want to jump in there with a real practical example. So last year we had a huge drought in the prairies, big hay shortage, and we actually had quite a bit of hay in Prince George, and uh, left over even from the year before. A lot of people did. So I actually called, um, who did I call her? I tried to talk to somebody about seeing about getting uh, hay loaded on the trains and, and shipped to the prairies. Because, you know, otherwise you got to load them on the trucks, and it's pretty expensive to, to ship the stuff. And it's just not, doesn't make economic sense. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much impossible. Like, good luck getting uh, hay loaded, some kind of situation where you could ship hay from Prince George to to the prairies. I mean, it makes, it sounds like it makes sense, but in reality, it's not going to happen. And I think it just goes back to uh, this real fixation on huge volume resource extraction industries and having little custom custom jobs like that. It is not going to happen, even if cattle are starving to death in the prairies. Yeah, <clears throat> certain amount of truth. Uh, well, this, that's pretty well true, but the big commodities that they like to ship because there's, there's really not a lot of cost involved. They're like 150 to 200 trains per, or carloads per train. And it's primarily potash, coal, sulfur, wheat, wood pellets, liquid propane gas. Anything like that, uh, you can get, like, the gas that goes through here to Prince Rupert for exports, 90 tank cars of liquid propane gas per train. And, uh, that that's really high revenue, low cost uh, transportation for uh, for the railways. 
But like you say, try to get something done on a local basis. Try to get a car spotted somewhere and so you can load lumber if you're a small small uh, person. They don't want to talk to you. In fact, I remember years ago, if you didn't generate $500,000 or more for a company, you got a 1-800 number in Toronto, and that was your contact with the railway. And it was just a, you know, you just don't rate at 500000 That's probably $5 million now. And uh, we're going to take a break here now. I see uh, we're out. <laughs> Worthy Warriors, a bra collection campaign, is on through the end of the month at Modern Match Lingerie. You're urged to donate new and gently used washed bras at 1552 Quinn Street starting tomorrow from 11 to 6 to help women living in poverty. Modern Match Lingerie will be collecting donations all month long. Cash donations will also be accepted. Modern Match will also donate $1 from every October sale to the campaign. Worthy Warriors, a bra collection for those in need, starting tomorrow from the United Way of Northern B.C. Your Prince George Symphony Orchestra is looking for volunteers to help with their booth at this year's studio fair. The popular event is at CN Center Friday through Sunday. The PGSO will have brochures and information available on their current season, as well as details on memberships, ticket subscriptions, and more. If you're interested in volunteering or know someone who might be, contact the symphony's executive director, Ken Hall, by emailing ken at pgso.com. Then help out with your Prince George Symphony Orchestra Friday through Sunday at CN Center. Join Two Rivers Gallery on Sunday, November 13th from 1 to 2 for an in-depth tour of their current main gallery exhibition, Hope. Hope is a group exhibit showcasing work from artists based in Canada who are culturally connected to South Asia. In-depth gallery tours are the second Sunday of each month, led by staff and knowledgeable learning and engagement volunteers. Don't miss the in-depth tour of Hope, Sunday, November 13th from 1 to 2 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. Forecast from Environment Canada, cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries this morning, and then clearing, wind from the southwest at 20 gusts into 40, a high of 4 with a morning wind chill to minus 8. Tonight clear, becoming partly cloudy late this evening, southwest winds becoming light, a low of Minus 8 with a wind chill to minus 11. For Tuesday, clearing late in the morning and a high of 1. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. So just to uh, touch on some of this stuff now, this year on the prairies we have a bumper crop for, <clears throat> of wheat, and of course they're scrambling trying to come up with rail cars to ship this, and uh, railways are kind of saying, well, it's not really the... The uh, rail cars, the, the wheat rail cars don't affect the lumber because you don't show you don't load lumber in wheat wheat cars. Well, of course you don't, and that's just a, a, a sleight of hand. There, the real the real issue is power, and if you've got a bumper crop and all kinds of uh, grain loaded in rail cars to go to say Vancouver, and you also got all all kinds of lumber to go to the United States. And you look at the numbers, and the ones going to the United States makes you twice as much money. Where's the power going to go to haul those trains? And who's going to get delayed? And those are the types of things that we used to have a handle on. We could phone somebody in Ottawa and ask what was going on. We had the Canadian Freight Association and a few other associations that actually looked at these things. And, uh, you know, even the... Uh, Transportation Board in Ottawa would ask some serious questions. That's not happening. I don't even know sometimes if these guys even know there was such a thing, and I certainly don't think that they care. So, you know, we have all this stuff. We have a history, like the CP and the CN were Class 1 railways in North America, and we were in the top 10. 
for performance and tons moved and whatever other way that they uh, would check, you know, rate these things. We're not there now, other than mainline uh, potash trains or something. We're not getting anything, uh, you know, locally for the local people. Yes, Peter? Uh, yeah, no, just to follow up on what you're saying here, like in terms of the, this article that I think Herb referred to it in terms of the financial post, uh, uh, there's a report that's been put together by the uh, transport ministry, federally speaking. And anyway, there's one quote from this article that uh, I think uh, bears list or thinking about. And the quote is, the recommendations of this report, this federal report on the, on the state of the rail industry, come with a stark warning. If the government does nothing, Canada's reputation as a reliable trading partner on the world stage will falter, and that would jeopardize our exports, which make up half of Canada's gross domestic product. Yeah, so I would agree with that. So, so we've got a lot, of, well, we don't have a lot of work to do, but some of those high-paid help that we have have a lot of work to do, and no, I suggest they get started. Take an interest in what's going on in the country. Did you want to say something? Yeah, there was, um, I guess, uh, CN was uh, originally quite optimistic uh, that they were going to be able to uh, ship the uh, all of the bumper crop uh, of the uh, grain harvest on the prairies this year. And uh, it turns out that they're actually short of conductors. So, you know, this is, um, that's not really acceptable. You know, that there's a, a basically a world problem in, in delivering grain, uh, you know, to some, some pretty, uh, you know, uh, countries who have it tough this year. And uh, because CN can't, uh, can't get his act together to get, find enough conductors, uh, we're, we're going to leave, that, uh, leave these, these countries in the lurch. Uh, seems, seems unbelievable and, uh, yeah, definitely calls for uh, some government oversight at the very least. Uh, when when your uh, bottom line and your shareholder value is the ultimate goal, you know, you're going to hire as few conductors as you possibly can. And what could possibly go wrong, Herb? You've, you've got not enough trains. Well, you can just jack the price up on these guys. If they want to ship their wheat so bad, then maybe they should pay double for those for those shipping rates. I mean, the, the, the problem with our government is, is if you look back to the 19th century, Canada was actually one of the first countries to bring in antitrust legislation. That's actually before the United States. And that was to make sure we had competition in the marketplace because if you don't have competition these big companies will screw you over and we realized that over 100 years ago uh you know this this enforcement this legislation is a sad sad uh, example of its former self i mean I, i've made complaints to the the federal um the, i forget the exact name of it these days but uh anti, antitrust um yeah body there competition bureau competition bureau with respect to the sale of the uh fort nelson tenure to canfor or the canfor sold to their proxy company um brian fair's uh, associated uh, pinnacle what was that called pinnacle uh, pellets i think yeah forest products or whatever yeah. forest products and you know like they're selling a public asset to an associated company it's not going on the open market like you're going to have and it's a non-competing product base that this this so-called independent company is going to be producing and they're going to ship all their logs to the same company that's selling a tenure i mean there's there's issues of competition here and and price fixing going on and and that kind of thing and you guys should look at it and uh nothing ever came of that you know they they wanted to talk to me on the phone about it and i, I said well you should maybe you guys should look at it yeah yeah well we have this mentality sometime in uh, canada in the last 20 or 30 years that 
you know, if you have a tumbleweed sitting on the side of the road, you don't have to do anything to move it. You just wait till the wind blows. And, uh, you know, th- this applies to a lot of work now. We don't want to do the work. We just want to sit there and wait until somehow it gets done. So this is what we're going to get into here now is remote work is the reason most of you won't have a job in five years. Now, these are people who are doing remote work. So who wants to start off on this? Peter? Uh, yeah, in terms of, you know, this is one more one of the manifestations that's happening with the national and, and uh, world economies and all this, where you have um, rem- remote work uh, being done, you know, ar- coming out of the COVID-19 virus, right? The whole idea that people could... Uh, uh, not have to come into the office, but could work at home and, uh, you know, operate that way. And, uh, of course, what's happening is that the uh, you have some employers looking at this situation and saying, well, if we can have our, uh, this employee, this white-collar employee or blue-collar employee uh, operating from, from their home away from the office, why don't we uh, outsource and and get it much get that same kind of employee and all this uh, in some foreign country at a much um, cheaper price, you know. So it's a, it's a, it, it comes down to like uh, basically uh, uh, an attack on on the uh, wages and and working conditions for employees, and uh, you know that's coupled with the, you know there's another related problem, and that's the whole. You know what they, what's called the gig economy, you know whereby uh, uh, people are uh, relegated to uh, part-time or uh, temporary kinds of work with no you know really secure job, right? And uh, so you have uh, uh, you know people having to um, you know move from job to job and uh, uh, with with nothing definite in in, in the works. So. You have a situation where, whereby you know th- this is a real problem for the the, the labor force, right? Like in terms of uh, being undermined and uh, um, put in a situation whereby the wages and working conditions are driven down. Uh, yeah, basically, uh, you know, it's a it's a result of a service economy that we've entered into, where uh, a lot of jobs are pretty much low paying. Uh, there's uh, uh, a lot of people, uh, can't, you know, a lot of companies, small companies, can't afford to uh, pay their employees um, uh, cost of wage increases. And uh, people are starting to, um, uh, you know, quietly quit, you know, basically do little little work in, in, in return for uh, what they're getting paid. Okay, we're going to take a break here now. Yeah, it's the Prince George Council of Seniors Meals on Wheels program supports older adults 55 plus residing in the Bowl area of Prince George who have difficulty preparing meals for themselves by providing fresh, nutritional, and affordable lunchtime meals. Cost is just eight fifty per meal, with a ten meal prepayment required for initial service. Meals are delivered weekdays between 11 and noon. For more information or to register, call the Council of Seniors Resource Center at 250-564-5888. Minds in Motion is a weekly program provided online for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each session has a 30-minute fitness video followed by 45 minutes of social time. 
Sessions are offered Tuesday and Wednesday from 10 to 11.30 and Thursday and Friday from 1 to 2.30. For more information or to register, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033 or email info.helpline at alzheimerbc.org. The Prince George RCMP is currently investigating a string of break-in enters to some local cannabis stores. From just before midnight on October 3rd through to about 3.30 a.m. on October 4th, the cannabis stores near 15th and Victoria, near Westwood and Massey, and on the 400 block of George Street were broken into by multiple suspects. Anyone with information about these events or who the suspects may be are asked to contact the RCMP at 250-561-561. 3300. The works of four top Prince George potters are currently on display in the feature gallery at Studio 2880. Alternative Firing Pottery features items from Leanne Carlson, Ayla Davidson, Natalie Breckis, and Karen Heathman, a variety of beautiful pottery produced by using alternative firing techniques. Be inspired and select some pieces for your own collection. Alternative Firing Pottery, on display through November 26th in the feature gallery at Studio 2880, open Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 11 to 5. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back and we're on this uh, little issue of remote work. just want to give you a few stats here on uh, what's been happening in the last, I'll say, since the 1950s. <clears throat> One is the union lost its power and effectiveness. One-third of private sector workers belong to unions. 1950 compared to 6% in 2021. This is really a, a, a something that should be rattling somebody's head. Uh, this resulted in less money for workers. Shareholders demanded a bigger portion of profits than employees. Employees' wages haven't kept up with impl- inflation, so they're making less money than they made a few years ago. And workers lost a lot of protection on job sites and offices. And now, of course... Uh, the fifth one is going to be this uh, deal that if you don't come to work uh, and you want to work from remotely from home, well, maybe we'll just get somebody in a foreign country to do it for less. So now we have a situation where you know they, they might come to an agreement where maybe you'll work from home for three days a week and work in the office two or the other way around. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, then there's going to be some changes there in how things are done. Um, but I, I would suggest that the managers and the people that are putting that stuff out there can also be replaced by a manager or somebody in a foreign country, and mm-hmm. and that's where it'll end up. It's not going to just stop with the workers. It's it, you know it'll go, it's going to be with all of us. So we need to stop this. So anybody got a comment? Yeah, it's uh, look. It, it, it relates a lot to the the power of corporations and and oligopolies. In 1965. The average CEO made 15 times the uh, typical worker's pay. Uh, the last uh, numbers um, uh, that have come out, American CEOs now make 351 times more than their workers. So that, that kind of tells you what's what's happened over over the last, what's that, 60 years. The, uh, you know, the average worker has, uh, has stagnated or even gone backwards in some cases. And uh, the power of the corporations have increased to the point where those in power are making astronomical and outrageous amounts of money. And uh, somehow we've let this happen. Yeah, I think we just got to take a big step back and talk about how 
you know, how does the economy and uh, industrialization, is that supposed to benefit society and community, or is this to benefit, you know, a select few people who are making these insane uh, salaries? And, you know, we basically what we're talking about here, the, um, the fact that uh, our white-collar jobs might get offshored is this is just the end result of, of this strategy of prioritizing corporate shareholder value. I mean, we've lost the reason those labor stats are so are so terrible nowadays is because we've lost our factories. You know, everything's been offshored where we actually made stuff. We don't make anything in North America, very little anymore. Like you go to Canadian Tire, uh, you can't even buy a screwdriver that's made in Canada. Um, you know, the, those were jobs where people were were making stuff with their hands. Well, we get rid of all those jobs. Now we've got to create this kind of fake economy where you know you've got all these kind of fake jobs with people sitting in front of a computer doing administrative stuff, you know, a lot of administrative jobs out there. Um, a lot of uh, bureaucratic red tape type jobs to, to keep people busy, you know, and we're at the end of the day, we're not making anything. It's just kind of like a, a fake hollow economy. And the, the idea that a lot of these jobs could be offshored, you know, for a fraction of the cost, I think is kind of exposing uh, it for what it is. Yeah, I was thinking what we should do is uh, is go to uh, eight day work week and, and split every government job in the country into two jobs. And I work four days, and James works four days on the same job. We all get paid. He gets the person that has the job gets a little less. The person that didn't have a job gets a huge increase. You don't have to worry about holidays or anything, and no unemployment be perfect <laughs> <laughs> if only people would listen to our radio show i mean we've got we've got all the, the solutions and uh, i was joking at the break there that, we, that we've got to do an eight-hour version of the show um although might be reg said there might be some negative uh, side effects of that <laughs> okay so uh we're getting down to the short strokes here we're talking about the quiet quitters are getting quiet fired and so basically what's happening in some of these workplaces now is people are not happy with their jobs. They go to work and they think, well, I'll just work, uh, just do what my job says. I'm not doing any more. And uh, so after a while, the, the boss is looking at him and saying, well, it's not working too well. You know, the guy should be producing more, and even though it's not in his job description. And uh, so then he gets into what they call quiet fired moves him over into uh, isolation by himself, doesn't give him anything to do, and uh, waits for him to get exasperated, and then he quits, and he doesn't get any severance, and they hire somebody else that's a little more production-minded, and uh, they're good to go. And I've seen this type of thing work with some top management people over the years that <clears throat> they didn't want to fire him for whatever reason, so they isolate him and don't give him anything to do, and generally within a the year they quit and leave. So it's a tried and true way of doing things, but it, but the question is, is it necessary? Why are we even doing stuff like that? If you if you give a person a job that has some meaning to it and ability to make decisions and be involved in the process, they'll do a good job. If you give them a job flipping pancakes all day and that's all they do, they're not allowed to taste them, they're not allowed to put any syrup on them, they can't put butter on it. That you just flip the pancake, man. That's what you're here for. And after a while, he just gets tired. But, you know, give him all the rest of it, 
and people are coming up and buying them and telling them how good the pancakes are, man, you'll be flipping pancakes for 10, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else got a comment here? You're just getting ready to wind her down. I think what I think what what all this shows, like the whole question of the outsourcing of jobs and and so on, right? It's a, a situation whereby uh, labor unions and labor organizations uh, are are going to have to be waging some battles in new ways, right, to deal with this uh, developing new situation in the in the world. You know, so in terms of uh, finding ways to cooperate with one another and and, and work together for the common good. I mean, in, in, in forestry, I think that's a, a good example is the labor unions are, uh, you know, they're not, they're not out there criticizing kind of the, the fact that uh, everything's kind of being dominated by a couple of big corporations and they're, they're not out there fighting for the little guys. And I think that's got to change. Okay, that's it for today. I want to thank everybody out there that's listened and thank my guests for coming in, James, Peter, and Herb, and... Uh, We'll be back here again. Well, some of us might be here on Saturday, Friday, and then we'll be back again with this show on Monday. Thank you. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair, with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.